Mark chapter number 15 tonight, beginning in verse number 1. Now, we're going to read 41 verses, and I hope that's okay. And uh, I, I believe it's fitting that we find ourselves in this portion of Scripture. I don't know if you're aware of this. I, You know, I check Facebook on a fairly regular basis, and uh, I didn't see very many people mentioning this today. Easter's just around the corner, you know, this Sunday morning. And I believe that uh, the Bible teaches, if you study it carefully, that Christ was crucified very likely on Wednesday and not on Sunday. And you say, preacher, why do you believe that? Well, the Bible says that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall also the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, I'm not a smart man. I'm going to admit that. And I don't want to hear any amens on it either, all right? But uh, the basic rules of arithmetic that I was taught as a little child will not allow me to believe that our Lord could have been crucified on a Friday and spend three days, that's three 12-hour periods, and three nights, that's three 12-hour periods, in the grave and come up on Sunday morning. I just can't believe that. And so if you study it carefully, he couldn't have been crucified uh, any earlier than on Thursday. But when you study that they took him off the cross because the Sabbath was upon them and that would have began at six o'clock in the evening, uh, then very likely it was on Wednesday morning that he was crucified. And right now, of course, there's a time difference. It's approximately 1 o'clock in uh, the morning in Jerusalem right now. And I know that sometimes, you know, we get pretty specific about it. I guess it'd be hard to uh, trace it back to the exact day, the exact time. I understand that. But as best as we can tell, our Lord would have been in the tomb for probably about seven or eight hours at this point. But <laughs> in our time frame, uh, they would have just put him in the tomb as we're meeting right now. And so I believe it's fitting that we take ourselves to the place of the cross tonight and just visit some oft familiar ground to us and look at some things that I believe will be a help to us. So if for nothing else, just to honor the day that our Lord was crucified, we ought to read this chapter. And certainly we'll be preaching from it tonight. So I hope you'll pay extra close attention. I want to read it deliberately tonight if the Lord will help me to do it. The Bible says in verse 1, And straightway in the morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and bound Jesus and carried him away, and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now at that feast he released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder in the insurrection. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered them, saying, 
Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. But the chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said unto them, Why? What evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band. And they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head. And began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him. And bowing their knees, worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place, Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them what every man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the superscription of his accusation was written over, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that buildest the temple, uh, destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on afar off, among, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joseph and Salome, who also when he was in Galilee followed him and ministered unto him. 
and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. Would you pray with me tonight? Heavenly Father, Lord, I I thank you for the privilege it is to stand here again. Lord, I suppose it, it causes me to appreciate the privilege that it is. Lord, I don't want to take it lightly and I don't want to take it for granted. I want you to help me, Lord, to be submitted to you tonight. I can't preach without you. And so, Lord, I would ask that your Holy Spirit would give me the power and the unction that's needed. And, Father, that you would open the hearts of your people that they can hear and understand your word. And, Lord, use the efforts of this feeble preacher to do something, Lord, that flesh cannot accomplish tonight. And I pray that it would be done in a way that would glorify you. I thank you for each and every person that's here tonight, Lord. I know they're here on purpose. And I pray, Lord, that you'd do a mighty work in their life. Father, if there's one amongst us, Lord, I know it's home folk. I know it's people we know. But, Lord, you know the hearts and we don't. And if there is one here that does not know Christ as their Savior, I pray, Lord, tonight that you convict them of their lost state. Show them the cross of Calvary, Lord. Show them what you did for them and that you love them, Lord. And show them that there's a way made and a debt's been paid for them. Lord, if there's one backslidden, I pray that you'd draw them closer to yourself. One that's downtrodden, I pray you'd uplift them closer to your dear presence. But Lord, I pray that everything that would be done would be in accordance with your will. I love you tonight, Lord. Lord, I don't love you as much as you love me. I know that, Lord, but I want to love you more. And I pray you'd teach me to love you more. We ask all this in that name which is beautiful, Lord. It's immaculate. It saves, Lord, and it soothes and it uplifts us, Lord. We ask all this in the precious name of Christ our Savior. Amen. It's hard to preach this passage. I don't mean that it's hard to find something to preach out of it. And I don't mean it's hard to find an outline. And I I, I don't mean that it's difficult to stand and to say things about it. But I mean, there's so much, and it's the magnitude of what's contained. I don't know if you're aware of it, but as you study the Bible, you'll find the gospel to be the very heartbeat of the Word of God. You see, the living Word had a heartbeat, but the written Word has a heartbeat. And it courses all throughout every page the truth of this coming Messiah and the truth of His coming, which is His death. And I don't know that there's the holy reverence in our hearts that should be at a time like this, not in observing days in a ceremonial way, but in a true holy reverence, understanding that as best as we can tell, it was on this day that our Lord took the road to that cross and died for our sins that we might be made to live. And as we examine this passage, there's much I'm going to not be able to deal with. But tonight I want us to notice three things we find at the cross, and there's much to be found there. As we look at this passage, I want us to look at three characters. And I want us to look at the way the cross affected their life. Let me tell you something tonight, church. The closer you get to the cross, the more it's going to change you. And you say, preacher, what do you mean by that? I'm saved. I'm already close to the cross. No, being close to the cross is more than just knowing Christ. Being close to the cross is crucifying your flesh. It's walking with the Lord. It's loving Him. It's needing Him. Being closer to the cross is being closer to the heartbeat of God. And like John the Apostle, laying your head on the bosom of the Son of God and hearing God's heartbeat. It's a close walk with the Savior. 
And as you crucify the flesh, you'll find it's difficult. And as you crucify self, preacher, what do you mean? I mean putting yourself aside for the Savior. I mean putting the fleshly desires and the fleshly wants and the fleshly ambitions and the fleshly aspirations that we have, putting them on the altar and saying, Lord, I'm here and I belong to you. And you've got all of me. You'll find that as you do that, it changes your life. At this passage, I want us to notice three things. And as I said, I know we've read a lot and I'm going to try to be brief. And I want to say that the first thing we see in Mark chapter 15, oh my, it thrills my heart to know that the cross is a place of unequal substitution. The first person we're introduced to in this story is a man by the name of Barabbas. Now, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about Barabbas. You see, Barabbas was a common prisoner. And a prisoner's information is not really that relevant in the story. He was a nobody. He was insignificant. The Bible says that him and those that were with him were part of an insurrection. They were rebels and they were reprobates. And they had rebelled against the government and they were in prison for that reason. But you see, Barabbas wasn't just part of a bad lot. Barabbas was the baddest of the bad lot. He was the worst. He was the apple that made the others turn. Amen. Barabbas was one that had committed murder in the insurrection. And Barabbas had a determined end to his life. I mean, he was going to a cross. He was headed for death. And that's who this man Barabbas is. We don't know if he had a good family. Maybe he did. He may have grown up in a religious home. He may have grown up in the home of a drunkard. He may have grown up... Uh, with a silver spoon in his mouth, or he may have grown up with sweat on his brow. We don't know. All we find in the life of Barabbas is the end of his road of sin, him as a prisoner waiting to die. But can I tell you that you and I are in that same shape? Let me tell you something. Your past don't matter a lot once you meet Calvary. You may have done a lot of bad things. We all do. And we could sit here and compare notes about the bad things we've done. And that probably wouldn't do anything but glorify our flesh. But I'd say tonight that whether you've done a lot of bad things or a few bad things, whether you've done really bad things or not so bad things, if you've ever sinned against Almighty God, that you are condemned to die. You and I are both in that shape. You say, preacher, I'm not a bad person. God never sends a man to hell for being a bad person. He sends a man to hell because he's rejected his only hope. The reason he's condemned is because he's born into this world. It's not because he commits sin, but because he is a sinner. We're not, uh, we're not sinners because we've sinned, but we sin because we're sinners. It's in our nature. It's who we are. We're rascals. That's who we are. And we're condemned to die when we're born into this world. And our past really doesn't matter a lot. And you say, preacher, are you saying that the sinner's not going to be judged? No, he's going to be judged. But when it comes to the matter of this death sentence, it doesn't matter what his past is. He's still condemned to die. But we find that though Barabbas was given this sentence and he was waiting to die, that something changed one day. I don't know how long Barabbas had been in prison. I don't know if he knew who the name, uh, who Jesus was, had ever heard the name of Jesus before this day. I do not know, but I guarantee you he remembered it after this day. Because, you see, Christ entered into his life. We don't know if Barabbas ever personally got saved, but it sure is a picture of the sinner coming to know Christ. Because let me say, first off, that his sentence was substituted. You see, Barabbas was able to go free that day. 
He didn't have to die the death that was promised to him. Instead, the Bible says that Pilate stood up and said, Who is it that you want? It was the custom at this time that one prisoner would be released. And everybody thought, well, surely it's going to be Jesus. But the religious crowd said, no, we don't want Jesus. We'd rather have this low-down, dirty scoundrel. We'd rather have him. And so when the name of Jesus was called on, Barabbas got to go free. His sentence was substituted. Barabbas hadn't done a thing to earn that. You know that? Barabbas was just there. That's the only thing he did. He hadn't done a thing to deserve what took place. Can I say that Barabbas' sentence, uh, he was sentenced to die. And the Son of God should not have been sentenced to die, if we can put it that way. He had done nothing, and even Pilate said it. He's done nothing worthy of death, but Barabbas had. Boy, don't you know that was a good trade that day. When his guilt sentence got passed to the Savior and a sentence of freedom and liberty and new life and continued days was passed to this Barabbas. Changed his life forever. But do you know when you got saved, the same thing happened? Christ died on a cross. That was your cross. Christ wore a crown of thorns. That crown of thorns was fitted to your head. The hammer that drove the nails was held by us. It was our sentence. We deserve to die. But it was traded that day. You didn't trade anything worthwhile that day. That's what grace is. Let me tell you something. If we had something to trade God, it wouldn't be grace. What the songwriter say? In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. We have nothing. But because of Christ Jesus, our sentence is substituted. Let me say secondly that his standing was substituted. I don't know what people thought of Barabbas that day. But let me just say that not only did he not have to die, but he was given the opportunity to walk away. And you know what he could tell people? He could tell people, though I was a murderer, though I was a rebel, though I was a reprobate, though there was nothing that would cause anyone to love me, the Son of God showed love in my life. The Son of God loved me. I was nothing. I was a murderer. I don't know if he changed his ways, but I kind of believe Barabbas probably went away that day saying, you know, I thought I was worthless. I thought I was nothing. But the very Son of God thought enough of me that he took my place and gave value to my life. Do you know that, you know, the public school system spends millions of dollars trying to tell kids they're worth something? When the truth of the matter is, until a man comes to know Christ, he's worthless. Worthless. Absolutely worthless. But let me tell you what changes that. This world sees no value in you, nor does it me. Uh, the devil sees no value in you except just to destroy you. That's it. He doesn't want you. He just wants to use you so he can destroy you and destroy others and destroy your family. But the good God of heaven sees enough value in you that he'd pay the ultimate price, bankrupt the treasury of heaven, and send his son to die for you. You're given a new standing. Before, you read in the Word of God, and three times the Bible uses uh, this phrase that says, and in times past. And it talks about how in times past we were reprobates. In times past, we were aliens from God. In times past, we were fornicators and adulterers. In times past, we were filled with, uh, filled with divers' lust. It says, but such were some of you. The Bible says, but Jesus Christ has made unto us wisdom and sanctification. Jesus Christ changed all that. And now, listen to me, when God looks at you, He sees a child. 
There's a relationship between you and Almighty God. And when He sees you, He doesn't see a stranger. He doesn't see a nobody. He doesn't see a murderer. He doesn't see a rebel. If you've been bathed and washed in the blood of Christ, He sees His child. That's what He sees when He looks at you. Your standing has been substituted. Look with me at verse number 16 very quickly. The Bible says, And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. That was the road that Barabbas was supposed to take. He was supposed to be on that road. Let me say his steps were substituted. He changed his life forever. Now you say, preacher, we don't know if he got saved. Well, you just let me have a little sanctified imagination. I, I, I know if I was in his shoes, that'd have an effect on me, Amen. And we don't know for sure, but let's just suppose, if that's okay, that he did come to really know Christ as his Savior. Let's just suppose that. I'd say it changed the way he lived the rest of his life. You know, it's unreal. I don't have the statistics in front of me. I've said it before. 99% of statistics are made up on the spot. Amen. We'll just throw one out there. We'll say 85% if that'll make everybody feel good tonight. Uh, But it's unreal the number of repeat offenders there are. In fact, the majority of people that go into prison, when they get out, they're going to go right back in. Let me tell you something. The prison system, if it's run right, is not rehabilitative. It's punitive. It should be punitive. Because the prison system cannot rehabilitate a person. Only Christ can transform a person. I'll tell you what a person learns when they go to prison. They learn how to not get caught the next time. That's what they learn. And they get out and they come back in and they get out and they come back in. But let me tell you something. Barabbas, who knows how many times he had been in prison. And probably if he had never met the Savior, he would have gone right back in. But if he come to know Christ, let me just guarantee you something. His steps got changed. His pathway got substituted. That crooked path he was traveling down became straight, became narrow. And God changed his life. Let me say, I'm thankful God changes a man when He saves him. I'm glad God is that powerful. When we preach uh, conviction without conversion, when we preach salvation without separation, when we preach the testimony of salvation without the transformation of the cross of Calvary, all we're doing is saying God's not able to change a man. That's all we're doing. Because the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. You can try as you may, you can explain it away like you will. And I know, I know, I know, church, oh, well, they need time to grow. And I know that. I know that, friend. But they need time to grow in grace. They don't need time to grow in sin. When God saves a man, He changes his life. It's not that he's never going to sin again, but it's that he'll always know it when he does. Changes a man's life. And I believe it was substituted that day. But I'm thankful for the cross of Calvary that it's a place of unequal substitution. I didn't have anything for God when He came for me, but He loved me enough to save me. Uh, Boy, don't you like the old singers? Look what I traded, look what I traded, look what I traded. I didn't have anything worth giving, but God took my worst and gave me His best. But it was not only a place of unequal substitution, but look in verse 21. The Bible says, And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Let me say the cross is a place of unequal substitution, but let me say the cross is a place of unexpected struggles in our life. The closer you get to the cross, the more struggles you're going to have. This ain't popular preaching, church, but I want to be honest enough with you to preach you the whole counsel of God. And when you start getting close to the Lord, you'll find the road gets rough sometimes. 
Some of you can testify to this. And you know, the second, you know why we lose so many young people? Listen to me. We lose so many young people because we never warn them of how tough it's going to be to serve God. And when we're leading them to Christ, we tell them about the glories of heaven, and we ought to. We tell them about the burning flames of hell, and we ought to. But we never tell them that as they give their heart and life to Christ, there's going to be times it'll be difficult. That's exactly opposite to the way Christ made disciples. When He made disciples, you know what He always said? He said, if you don't hate your father and mother, you're not worthy of me. He said, if you turn back, you're not worthy of me. People would come to him. They'd say, Lord, I want to follow you. And he'd say, all right, come follow me. They'd say, whoa, I didn't say I wanted to follow you right now. He'd say, I've got to go back and I've got to take care of my father and I've got to bury him when he dies. And Christ said, go let the dead bury their dead. Come down and follow me. It's difficult sometimes. Let me tell you something. You live a mediocre Christian life. You're not going to have a lot of battles. Isn't that true? You live a mediocre Christian life. You're not going to have a lot of battles. I mean, you just float downstream like a dead fish and don't ever do anything to upset the devil. It's not going to be too hard on you. But you start living for God, I promise it'll put a target on your back. Why did Simon get the cross? Because he was passing by. He was close. He was near the cross, and so it fell to him to bear it. I want to say, first off, that the struggles in our life are providential. Isn't it interesting that this Simon was passing by just at that moment? Christ could have come out of that city ten minutes earlier, and it would have been someone else. Ten minutes later, it would have been someone else. But by the providence of God, their paths crossed. Do you know that when you have difficulties in life, God's aware of them? We have a tendency, and I know, church, I'm at, listen, let me preach at me for a minute, okay? So everybody, don't fall asleep now, because I'm going to preach at you in a second. But, but let me just preach at me sometimes. And let me say that sometimes we just get amazed when the road gets rough. Sometimes we act like we had no clue that things were going to be this tough. But let me say that the Bible says, Yea, and all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The Bible says, For even hereunto were ye also called to suffer. Christ also suffered. And He was an example for us that we're going to follow in His steps. We're going to suffer just like He suffered. I promise you, the second, listen to me, the second you make up your mind that you're going to get up and go to church, that's when your schedule gets busy. That's when the bed gets warmer, the blanket gets heavier. That's when the problems start arriving. That's when the tires go flat and the gas tank goes empty. When you make up your mind that you're going to serve God, get to church, that's when all the trouble starts. When you make up your mind you're going to up your giving to the Lord, that's when your bills get higher. When you make up your mind, you're going to sit down and pray. That's when the distractions arise. It's no coincidence, neighbor. It's no coincidence. The devil's out to stop you from serving God. It's no coincidence. But providentially, God brings difficulties in our life. Let me say that they're providential, but they're purposed. I'm just going to use my imagination again, okay? I hope that's all right. What would have happened if Simon had said no? I know, I understand, I understand we have a sovereign God, I understand the Lord knew. I understand, and I'm not trying to play devil's advocate here, but just imagine with me for one moment what would have happened if Simon had said no. You see, the reason that they were wanting Simon to carry the cross was not because they had so much concern for Jesus. That's not why they were wanting him to carry it. 
It's not that these soldiers were taking pity on the bloody and beaten and bruised Savior. It's not that they said, well, somebody ought to help him. Look at the load he's carrying. They were afraid he was going to die before they made it to the spot they were going to crucify. And so they brought Simon in and said, you're going to have to carry the cross for this man so that we can get him there and crucify him. What would have happened if he had said no? What would have happened if he had died in the road if our Lord had done that? I know that wasn't going to happen. I understand that. Let me just say that there was a purpose in him bearing this cross. Sometimes it's difficult for us to understand our struggles. And I'm sure that Simon at that very moment did not understand these this cross that he was bearing. He might have even thought this. You ready? He might have even thought, you know, I didn't sign up for this. He might have even thought, I wasn't planning on this today. I didn't come out of my house planning to bear this cross. And most of our struggles we don't plan on. Most of our difficulties in life are unexpected. We're not planning on carrying that cross. We're not planning on carrying that burden. But it comes to us just the same. Take comfort in knowing there's purpose in it. He probably didn't understand it. But I kind of believe by the end of that day, he understood why he needed to carry that cross. He understood there was a reason for it. Because let me say number three, it was a purifying thing. It was a purifying thing. I don't know if you know this, but if you'll read carefully in that passage, I want you to notice. In fact, we'll read it together. And I want you to pretend that you don't know so much about the Bible, okay? I know, you know, you got one of these smart pastors that teaches you all the time. I know that. But but just pretend that we're just reading this like it's the first time we've ever read it. And, and tell me this doesn't sound strange. It says, and they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country. Now notice this. And let me read it the way I believe it needs to be read. The father of Alexander and Rufus. The father of Alexander and Rufus. Isn't that interesting? We got a lot of mics in this church, right? We got a lot of mics. We got a mic there. We got, we've got two mics that aren't able to be here tonight. There's probably another one. I don't even know. I, I, we got mics all over the place. We got a mic, mic there, there, and there. But mics all over the place. And sometimes I'll be talking, you know, gossiping about them to somebody. And I'll say, uh, yeah, Mike said this. And you know why I say it like that? Because I know who I'm talking about. And I kind of expect everyone else to understand who I'm talking about. And sometimes someone will have to say, Mike who? And I'll have to say, well, you know, Mike Roach or uh, Mike Cream or, you know, my father-in-law, Mike. I'll have to clarify. Because when you say something in that comfortable manner, you're just taking for granted that people know who you're talking about, ain't you? I, I mean, there's certain people. If I if I was to talk to somebody and I was... Here at church, and I, I was to look at, at Richard, and I would say, did you hear what Charlie said earlier? He'd know who I was talking about. If I was to say, you know Ralph? They'd say, yeah, we know Ralph. It's funny that the way that Mark talks about Alexander and Rufus, he speaks to the church almost as if they should know who Alexander and Rufus are. Now remember, it's years later that Mark is writing his account of the gospel. And let me tell you why I believe that Mark said it that way. I believe people in the church knew who Alexander and Rufus were for the same reason that people here know who Bill or Charlie or Ralph are, because I believe they were in the church. In fact, if you read in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, you'll find that Paul says, Salute thee, Rufus. He talks about Rufus. 
There's a lot of Alexanders through the Scripture, and I, I, I hope that some of them are not the same Alexander that's referenced here, because some of them are kind of rascals, you know. But I believe that those two boys of Simon the Cyrenian, I kind of believe they wound up getting saved and getting into the church house. You see, if Simon hadn't borne that cross, his sons probably would have never come to know Christ. It was a purifying thing in his family. And you can't always understand your struggles, but I promise you, like the Lord told Job, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Gold ain't worth a thing if it hadn't been tried by fire. And beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing hath happened unto you. The Bible says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, though it be tried by fire, fact is, you're going to have struggles and difficulties, but there's purpose in them. And whatever other purposes there might be, let me say that one purpose I know there always is in it is it draws you closer to the Lord. It has an effect on those that are around you. You're going to have unexpected crosses and unexpected troubles and unexpected burdens, but there's a reason for every bit of it. I'm going to give you a third and final thing, and I'm going to hush. I don't want to get a reputation, Amen. <laughs> Look in verse number 37 with me. I want us to look at one final man. I don't know what these fellas have done to my microphone. I can't get the thing to... I'm going to charge Brandon for it. Amen. Verse 37, it says, And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Now notice verse 39. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, now, listen, Barabbas was in the vicinity of the cross. Cyrenian was in the pathway of the cross. But the centurion was in the shadow of the cross. Look what it says. Which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. I want to say that the cross is a place of unequal substitution and I say hallelujah for it. I want to say that the cross is a place of unexpected struggles. And they're difficult, but there's purpose in them. But I'm thankful that the cross is a place of unearned second chances. This centurion, you know why it says the centurion? The centurion. He was the main guy. He was the one overseeing the crucifixion of Christ. He was the one that the other soldiers that sat down and cast lots on the Lord's garments and, and watched. This soldier was the one that was over them. He was the main one. It was him that had instructed the nails to be driven. It was him that had picked the place. We know the Lord picked the place, but it was him in a, in, in a present sense that, that had picked the place. It was him that had compelled Simon. His hand was all over Christ's crucifixion. But when our Lord cried out and gave up the ghost, this centurion said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Let me tell you what we do when we sin. We take and we grab that hammer and we drive the nails again. We take that whip and we lash it again. We grab some of that beard and we pull it again. We spit in that face again. You say, preacher, that's dramatic. No, the Bible says he's tasted death for every man. So that's for you, that's for me. 
What was it that put Him on the cross? Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. The Bible says that He was crucified uh, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. That He was crucified for your sins, for my sins. It was our sin that put Him on the cross. And so when we sin, when we sin, we're blacking the eye of the Savior. I know you're guilty of sin just like I am. Every one of us. And the truth is, I'm thankful that when I've sinned, not if, church, when I've sinned, that there's a place I can go and I can have my sins washed. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You say, that's for the sinner. No, that's for the saint. John was writing to the beloved. He said, little children. He said, fathers. He was writing to the church. And he said, there's a place you can go when you've broken fellowship and you need a second chance with God. There's a place you can go. You can still go to the cross. I believe this soldier found three things here. I want to say, first off, he found his guilt at this cross. When he saw the cross, he was aware of what he did. Let me tell you something. The closer you get to God, the more conscious you are of your sins. The farther you get from the cross, the more conscious you are of everyone else's sins. And as you get closer to God and you nail your flesh to the cross and you ask the Lord to search you and try you and see if there be any wicked or unclean way within you, let me tell you something. He'll do it. And He'll show you some things. And you look into that perfect law of liberty and you'll see yourself, warts and all. And you'll find guilt in your life. And that guilt ought to bring number two. It ought to bring grief. Let me tell you something. I've never seen a day that we live in where we're so okay with sin. I've never seen a day that we live in when we're so okay with unfaithfulness. When we're so okay with selfishness. When we're so okay with unrighteousness. It just doesn't even affect us. It ought to vex our righteous souls, shouldn't it? It ought to bother us, but it doesn't. And only when we see our sin in the shadow of Christ's cross will it begin to break our hearts. And let me tell you something. Until you get broken over your sin, you won't get broken from your sin. Until you see sin as an ugly thing, you won't forsake it. You've got to understand that your sin is what put Him on that cross. But I'm thankfully not only found guilt and grief there. Oh, (laughs) I'm so thankfully found grace. I'm so thankfully found grace. I'm so thankful there was a place where that man could look. That's what changed him, wasn't it? When he saw this, when he saw this, when he saw this, when he looked to the cross, he found forgiveness for his sins. And let me tell you something, you may have messed up. And you may have hurt God and disappointed Him and disappointed your family and disappointed your friends, disappointed your church, disappointed your spouse. But let me tell you that there's a God in heaven that's ready to forgive you and to restore you and to bring you back into fellowship and to bring you close to Him. There's grace found at the cross tonight. You don't have to stay in the shape you're in. You don't have to stay in sin. You make the choice to do it. Just like you made the choice to enter into it. I make the choice. You make the choice. It's a universal thing. But tonight, if you're aware that you've displeased God, if you're aware that there's something in your life, if you're aware that you've messed up, and you get closer to the cross, you'll probably find something. I'm thankful there's a place you can go and that you can ask God to forgive you and to cleanse you. And when you do, He's faithful and He's just to forgive us our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.